we can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll see how far we make it through this this morning. Don't want our food to get cold. If you want to encourage a pastor to end early, just supply some food after the service. And usually that's, uh, that's the key, right? <laughs> no. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at glorifying God in your body, glorifying God in your body. And the one thing that uh, stands out in this, this message uh, this morning is that all of us are called to do just that. If we're believers in Jesus Christ and we've committed our lives to him and he is our Lord and our Savior, we are committed to glorifying him each and every day that we have breath. It's not an option. It's not something that we get to decide to do on a daily basis, even though we do that. Uh, We need to understand that this is a command that is clearly found in God's Word all over the place. And just a reminder, if you're visiting with this, just to give you a little background on Corinth, the the letter was written to this city named Corinth and the church there, and Paul wrote this letter. And Corinth was a very wicked place. It was full of uh, luxury, money, <clears throat> full of vice. Uh, on every corner, practically, there were prostitutes available in large numbers. All kinds of sexual perversion was openly practiced there. Kind of sounds familiar. <laughs> you know, we live in the Bay Area. But the immorality of Corinth was largely promoted by a lot of the pagan religious backgrounds and practices that they, they participated in. It was the center for worship of the goddess of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. And those who worshipped uh, her uh, had practices that were largely immoral and wicked. Uh, the temple of Aphrodite was serviced by thousands of temple prostitutes where men could come and satisfy their lustful desires in the name of their religion. And the Greeks of Paul's day really thought the soul is uh, some value, but the body, the physical body, was considered just a necessary evil, something that we had to put up with. Uh, They had a proverbial saying back in Paul's time, and they would say this, the body is a tomb. (laughs) That's all it is. It's just a tomb. No respect for the body at all. One Greek philosopher said, I am, a poor and, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. That was their idea of the human body. And as a result of their ridiculous, foolish philosophy, they weren't really um, uh, caring for their bodies the way they should have. Uh, they just didn't care. And so Paul comes along and he, he begins preaching the gospel of Christ to this lost and sinful city and the, even the, the church that was there. And he begins to win men and women to Christ. And you know what? This is what happens when the word of God is preached. The word of God always confronts and opposes a corrupt culture. It always confronts and opposes a corrupt culture. That's why so many churches today get in trouble because they're trying to wrap their arms around the culture. They're trying to like the culture. They're trying to get the culture to like them. And it's impossible. You're talking about light and darkness. 
truth and falsehood. G. Campbell Morgan said this, the whole trouble can be summarized by saying that the spirit of the city, speaking of Corinth, had infected the church. That is always a peril, he continues. The church's business is not to catch the spirit of the age, but to correct it. When the church of God knows its own business and is living in accordance with its own mighty laws of life, she is a perpetual rebuke to the things that are merely of the passing and ephemeral age. See, Paul certainly corrected the spirit of his age when he wrote this letter. He pointed out the sanctity of a believer's body. He pointed out last week we saw the believer's body is what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that was the exact opposite that the worldly philosophy of Corinth that infiltrated the church taught. And so you had people within the church in Corinth believing some of these pagan teachings. And so Paul had to confront them with this letter. Now we've taken a couple messages away from this this chapter so far. Last week we looked at powerful principles for proper practice. And just to quickly go over them, we talked about the principle of expediency. In other words, is it lawful? Is it helpful for you? Um, We talked about the principle of enslavement, where Paul says, I'm not going to be dominated by anything. We talked about the principle of example. Uh, In in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul goes over that. He wasn't giving them an ironclad rule book. So many people today in Christianity think of Christianity as a bunch of rules. You either got to do this or don't do that. And who wants to live that kind of life? That's not what Christianity is. Christianity applies the principles, life-giving principles of the Bible to our lives. And we also saw the principle of edification. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you're going to do anything in your life, make sure it builds you up. Or it edifies somebody else. If, it's, if it doesn't build you up, guess what? It's tearing you down. There's no, no neutral ground there. And then he also talked about the principle of exaltation in 1 Corinthians 10.31. That we should do everything for the glory of God. And everything we do in our life either honors or dishonors God. And then the last one we looked at was the principle of evangelism. Um, Paul didn't want to turn anybody off by his Christian lifestyle. That wasn't the purpose. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm willing to become all things to all people so that I may win some. That doesn't mean he goes out and participates in their sinful practices, but as far as the trivial things that some of the people in Corinth were fighting over, whether you should eat this or whether you should wear that or how long your hair should be or whatever, Paul's saying that's irrelevant. It's not important. And we ask the question in the end of our message, are you living Are you being a living witness for Christ each and every day? Well, today I want to talk about principles for staying pure. Principles for staying pure. And it's important that we look at this because as you look in the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you just follow along and I'll read this for us and hopefully we'll get through the whole thing before our food gets cold. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. He says there, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are what? Helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, he says, by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both 
one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Principles of staying pure. First of all, we're going to talk about principles for the body. Principles for the body. He says there in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful to me, he says. The first point here that Paul deals with is, guess what, our Christian liberty. Our Christian liberty. You know, you hear about our Christian liberty quite a bit today. Oh, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. You know, I'm a Christian now. All my sins are forgiven, so I can just go do whatever. Paul makes it clear that our Christian liberty is not a license to sin. Just because our sins are forgiven, that doesn't give us the license to go out and do whatever we want. And that's what Paul addressed even in the book of Romans, right? Shall I go out and sin more so the grace may abound more? God forbid. Paul's statement here is based on the fact that he is no longer under the Mosaic law. Because that can't save anyone. But he's under what? He's under grace. He's been touched by God's grace. See, when he was a Pharisee, he lived according to a system of do's and don'ts. And by the way, you don't have to be a Pharisee to live by a system of do's and don'ts. There's a lot of Christians in the church today that do just that. They live by a system of do's and don'ts. And based on their little list of what they think they should be doing or not doing, they judge everybody else. And usually it's on items that are not even sinful. It's items of preference that they can't even point to a verse on. And so Paul wants to make it very clear that, you know what, I'm living under God's grace now. I'm not, I don't have a list of do's and don'ts for my Christian life. So you've got to ask the question. He says, all things are lawful for me. What did he mean? Did he mean that everything and anything was lawful and legal for Christians to do? Is that what he was saying? Well, it can't be. Absolutely not. When he said all things are lawful for me, he's in no way referring to things that were sinful or ungodly because elsewhere in the book he he calls them out on things that are sinful and ungodly. He doesn't say, he doesn't tell them when they're doing those things, oh, don't worry about it. You know, you're suing each other in court and, you know, you have people sleeping with each other and all this stuff. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Your sins are forgiven. He doesn't tell them that. He says, stop it. That's not honoring to the Lord. See, we already know certain things to be lawful, certain things to be unlawful, certain things to be forbidden. And Paul wanted the Corinthians 
to understand the things that he was about to say was not a bunch of religious do's and don'ts, because he was going to call them the task on their lifestyle. He said, I'm not, I'm not here to give you a bunch of do's and don'ts that's going to destroy your liberty in Christ. I'm not trying to give you a list so you can look at the list and say, okay, I did one, two, and three. Boy, look at me, how good I am. I'm, I'm so righteous. That's self-righteousness. I grew up in a church that's filled with self-righteousness. 19 years of my life, went to Mass every Sunday, was an altar boy, went to communion, did the whole thing, confession. And boy, if I missed a Mass, I thought, oh man, God, no, it's not good. It's not good. I lived under that kind of fear and guilt, as most Catholics do, by the way. And it's not a gospel that is found in the Bible. It's a gospel of works. They say, well, if you do this, you do this, you do this. If you just follow our little rules of do's and don'ts, then God will love you more. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we're all sinners. We're all without hope in this world. Not one of us can do something to better ourselves before God. It says there's none that seeks after God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Well, we're all in a world of hurt then. That's exactly right. And that's why God, what did he do? He sent his own son who was perfect in every way. The very son of God came down from heaven, forsook heaven, came down, took on a human life, yet still remaining God. And he lived a life here for 30 some years, tempted in ways that we're tempted. And yet the Bible says without sin, he was perfect. He lived a perfect life. He had to. He was God. Somebody was asking me the other day, well, I was asking them, what do you think about Jesus? And they said, oh, he's a good guy, a good, good teacher, a good teacher. And I said, oh, I said, would you, would you think Jesus would tell a lie? Well, no, no, he's supposed to be God, right? Why would he tell a lie? Right. Well, well I just like all religions, she was saying. And I said, well, let me tell you what Jesus said. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And guess what? You can't go to the Father unless you come through me. He said that? She said, I go, yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> Look it up. Gospel of John 14.6. That's what he says. Wow, that seems kind of exclusive. Yeah. Kind of limiting. Yes. That's the salvation that God offers us. It's through Christ in Christ alone. And so Paul says, I don't want you to have a self-righteousness. I want you to understand that Christ gives you his righteousness. That's why Christ went to the cross. He died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he paid for the sins of all those who would put their faith, their trust in Christ for their salvation. And when you come to a point in life where you're at the bottom of the barrel and there's nowhere else but to look up and you realize that, wow, I can't save myself. Doing this church thing isn't going to save me. Getting baptized isn't going to save me. Beating the homeless isn't going to save me. The only way I can get saved is to come the way God says, through Jesus Christ. And I come to him and I bow my knee to him and say, Lord, I, 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 I confess my sins to you. I want to turn from my sins to the Savior. And when you do that, and you do that with a sincere heart, and you cry out to God, like, it doesn't have to be a complicated prayer. Nobody has to lead you in a prayer to come to Jesus. You just tell him whatever is on your heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That prayer will save you if it's prayed from a sincere heart. 
And then what happens? God gives you righteousness. God, the Bible says, imputes to you the righteousness of Christ. All the righteousness that God had in Jesus Christ, he was hanging on a cross completely righteous, and yet God put on him all of our sin. You ever get blamed for something you didn't do? (laughs) It's not fun, right? You don't like that. Can you imagine having to pay the price for something you didn't do? That's what Jesus did for us. He hung on the cross, never committed any sin, and yet he took upon himself all of the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ. And then God judged him as such. He imputed to Christ our sin, and he imputed the righteousness of Christ to us. Imputed just means he gave it to us. He he put it in our life. And so Paul's righteousness was no longer one that he was striving to reach, but one that was given to him. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says this, For our sake he made him, God made him, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, who? In Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. See, outside of Christ, we have no righteousness. You can take all the showers you want. You can clean yourself up, put on all the cologne, hair gel, whatever. It's not righteousness. Your heart is still as black as sin. And after Paul understood that, he could say, he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, having a righteous, not having a righteousness of my own, excuse me, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's how he used to get it, being a good Pharisee, keeping all the laws, and he tapped himself on his head and say, oh, well done. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What is faith? Faith is trust. When you sat down in that chair, I, don't, I didn't see any of you walk over to that chair and, you know, boy, I don't know. I don't know if I should sit down or not. You just plopped yourself down. What is that? That's faith. You're putting faith in the engineer and the maker of those chairs saying, hopefully, they will hold me. Faith in Christ is just that. You're looking to God and you're saying, you know what, I, wanna, I don't want to put faith, I don't want to put trust in me. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't last two minutes if I put trust in myself. I want to put some trust in something that's greater than me, in Christ. Paul was teaching here, the Corinthians, that real liberty is in Jesus Christ. You want to be free? Trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then you'll know what real freedom is. You may think you're free now. You know, I don't want to get tied up in that religious stuff. That seems constrictive. Trust me. You're constricted by your own sin right now. If you want true freedom, come to Christ. Christian liberty means that the believer is liberated from his sin. John 8, verse 32. The Gospel of John. John says this, and and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Christ says, so if if the Son sets you free, he says, you will what? Be free indeed. If you want real freedom, not this fake freedom that the world offers or that you come up with in your own mind, but if you want real liberty, if you want real freedom, you come to God in the way that he prescribes through Christ. 
Liberty is not freedom to sin. Liberty is freedom from sin. Let me say that again. Liberty, Christian liberty, is not freedom to sin, but it's freedom from sin. And see, some of these Corinthians, they were living as they were still slaves to sin, even though they had been set free. And there's a lot of believers in the church today that are enslaved to sin because they haven't recognized that Christ has set them free. Liberty without lordship is out of balance. You can't just say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. There's a lot of people today that teach that you can come to Jesus as Savior and not Lord. You can come to Jesus and say, oh, I want want him to be my Savior, but I don't want to do anything he says. And some people teach, well, that's okay. You can continue down that path. Eventually, you'll, you'll come to understand more, and eventually you'll, you'll, you'll make Jesus your Lord. Another faulty saying that people say, we don't make Jesus anything. Jesus is Lord. Coming to faith in him is simply acknowledging his lordship over your life. The Christian is not free to do as he pleases, but he's free from the power of Satan and the power of sin for the first time in his life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of Christian liberty. He, he tells the Galatians that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. He's talking to Christians. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Don't you dare use your, oh, all my sins are forgiven, so I'm going to go do more. Don't use that excuse. That doesn't go well with God. That's dishonoring to God. Liberty that leads to looseness is not the liberty of the Bible. If you're doing something that is not right in the eyes of the Lord and you're cloaking it under your Christian liberty, that's not honoring. Liberty is never a license to live an unrestrained life. It's an incentive, an incentive to what, you ask. It should be an incentive for us to live a holy life for the glory of God. So Paul's life was now governed by the same grace that saved him. The same grace that saved him, now he wanted to live his life by it. He tells the the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul says, it's no longer I that live, but what? Christ who lives in me. And he even goes on, he says, in the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. In verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You ever think of that one? If you could work your way to heaven, then this whole thing about the cross and the Savior and all that... It's a bunch of hooey. If there's even the slightest chance that somehow you could get your own path to heaven and earn your own righteousness, then throw out Jesus, throw out the cross, throw out Christianity, throw out everything. Just go do it your own way. But that's not possible. So you see here the priority of freedom. Secondly, you see the priority of forbearance. Look at verse 12 there, it says, but not all things are helpful. Not all things, some translations say, are expedient, which means beneficial, profitable, advantageous. 
Webster defines that word this way, that which serves to promote or advance. It has the idea of, of working forward toward a destination. I mean, think about it. A lot of people are going on trips probably this weekend. It's a long weekend, Veterans Day. Congratulations, veterans. Appreciate your service. If you're going on a trip, when you leave our place of departure and you move toward your destination, that's the idea of this word. Is it going to get me there? Hopefully, when you go on a trip, you take certain things with you. Maybe you take a road map or a GPS or phone, whatever. Hopefully, you have gas in your tank. Maybe you have a cooler in the car with some munchies, whatever. Those are things that will what? Will help, will expedite your, your, your trip and help you move toward your destination. See, that same principle applies when it comes to our Christian life. We have a destination. And guess what? It's not this world. This world, we're just passing through. See, the destination of every believer is what? Is to be like who? To be like Christ. We sang about this morning, to be conformed to his image. So therefore, if anything does not serve to make us more like Christ and move us forward toward that ultimate goal, it should be off limits. See, the real issue is not, is it lawful, but is it helpful? Will it move me toward the cause of Christ? There are a lot of things in our lives that are not beneficial, though they're lawful. And so we have to remind ourselves of that. And then also he brings up the possibility of failure here. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. See, this is where a lot of Christians fail when it comes to their Christian liberty. The phrase dominated by anything could be read brought under its power. It carries the idea of being under the rule or being enslaved to something. Paul said in Romans 6, 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I mean, I wish when we became a Christian, we just said bye-bye to sin. (laughs) And we didn't even have to worry about it anymore. But guess what? That's not what happens. Now, some false teachers will tell you that. But all you have to do is follow their life a little while and you realize, well, no, they're still dealing with sin. And most of them in a big-time way. See, the reason we're still dealing with sin is because we're here on this sinful earth, right? We're still here on the sinful earth. We're still in the sinful body. This body's not regenerate. It's not glorified yet. It still has desires that run counter to what God would have us to desire. And as a result of practicing loose liberty, many end up under the reign of the flesh. They say, well, I'll just try this. There's no, no harm in this. It's not harming anybody. But the question is not, is it harming anybody? Is it growing you in Christ? Is it growing you more like Christ? Because you can be brought under the power of that reign of the flesh. That which starts out simply as a little weight can easily become a sin. That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, he says, 
and sin, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, the runners in the Olympic Games, they often wear training weights. I remember when I was in high school and practicing for football, and my brother bought me these ankle weights. Oh, it's just miserable things. I mean, they weren't even comfortable. I mean, I remember wearing them, and they'd have blisters on my ankles after wearing these two-pound weights on my legs. He'd make me go out and run miles, and then I'd come home and take them off, and I thought, wow, I just feel like I'd jump, you know, on top of a building or something. See, the weights weren't bad in and the, of themselves, but you know what? I wouldn't wear them in a football game. Why? It would weigh me down. That's, that's a good illustration of our, our Christian life, our Christian race. We're in a marathon, and we have a destination. So therefore, you have to lay aside all these weights, anything that runs counter to Christ and run wholeheartedly for him. See, and at the point that a Christian cannot lay aside that weight, that's when it becomes sin. That's when it becomes something that hinders your Christian walk. It might start off as something just harmless, something innocent. But after a while, it begins to weigh us down. It, after a while, begins to distract us from the things of God. After a while, it redirects our attention to this temporary world in which we live. After a while, it begins to rob us of our time. It drains us of our energy. It dampens our zeal for the things of God. See, that is when a weight becomes a sin. Anything that enslaves the Christian is sin. It doesn't matter what it is. Even lawful appetites and desires can easily become our masters. And we, their slaves. I mean, we, we're called to enjoy our Christian liberty, but may we determine, as Paul determines, that we will not be brought under the power of anything. So those are the principles for the body. The principle of freedom, forbearance, and the possibility of failure. Well, look at the purpose of the body on the back of the outline there, verses 13 to 14. He begins to talk about food which we'll be talking about. We'll be eating in a few moments. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the body and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So having dealt with Christian liberty, Paul now begins to say, you know what, you need to understand the real purpose For the Christian's body. What is the purpose here? Uh, Some people in Corinth, unfortunately, foolishly, claiming that the body was designed just for sex, just like the stomach was designed to to be filled with food. So if you, you know, just when you get hungry, you go and you eat something and you satisfy your, your stomach pains. Well, they said it's just as natural to go do whatever is necessary to satisfy your sexual appetite. doesn't matter. Your body's nothing. Don't worry about it. And so Paul opposed their argument. And he he pointed out the difference here between the temporal and the eternal. That's what he's doing. Think about it. Your stomach serves as a temporary purpose. Only in this life will you have your stomach and its purpose. 
The Christian's body will exist for all eternity. We'll have a body. We'll have a glorified body. But in eternity, when we have our glorified bodies, are we going to eat? Sure. But there's not going to be any need to eat to sustain our life because we'll be eternal. The belly will lose its purpose as we know it today. But the body will continue to exist as God raises it up as he raised the body of Jesus. That's Paul's argument. And it's strong here. He's he's really throwing this in their face. He says, you know, food only has temporary significance. On the other hand, sexual immorality has eternal consequences. That's what he's pointing out. Proverbs 6.32 says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. (laughs) He who does it destroys himself. See, Paul makes it clear that our bodies belong not to us, but to the Lord. They are on loan to us for the purpose of serving and glorifying him. And so a believer who's engaged in sinful practices of immorality does not glorify God in any way. It's absolutely impossible to engage in sinful practices and at the same time glorify the Lord. And he points out why, first of all, the partnership of the body. Verse 15, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? When you came to Christ, you became a member of his body. At the very moment of salvation, we are spiritually joined to Christ. We become part of him. That's the very privilege of being the child of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says, For by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Gentile, whether we're bond or whether we're free, we've all been made to drink of one Spirit. That's why when he heard about divisiveness in the Christian church in Corinth, he was so upset because there shouldn't be any divisiveness in the body of Christ. No male nor female. There's no Jew nor Gentile. There's no white nor black. Asian, doesn't matter. We're all together as the body of Christ. Upon conversion, we become, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says this, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Wrap your mind around that. When you became a Christian, you became partakers of, a divine, of the divine nature. The believer is eternally united with Christ. That's why we believe in eternal security. Once you come to Christ and God has saved you, there's no way. It's impossible. God would have to deny himself for you to be unsaved. Now, there's a lot of people that Maybe think they're saved that aren't. <laughs> and maybe later in life they come to Christ or whatever. But once you are saved, you are saved for all eternity. And that's the, the power here of this analogy that he's using. We're part of the body of Christ. And he says, if my body belongs to Christ, and I am part of the body of Christ, how awful of a thought of it is taking my body and be joined to a prostitute or a harlot. It's the strongest language possible that Paul uses here. He says, God forbid, let it never happen. 
because of that partnership we have with Christ. That alone should motivate us to holiness and purity. Well, secondly, he talks about the perversion of the body in verse 16. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's the sexual union. We are so much a part of Christ that for a Christian to commit fornication with a harlot is to unite the body of Christ with the harlot. That's what he's saying. Oliver B. Green wrote this, The scripture teaches that if illicit sex practice is carried on between two individuals, they become one body, one flesh. And that which God intended to be high, noble, and beautiful becomes low, ugly, degrading. There is nothing that will destroy an individual so quickly as uh, promiscuous sexual practices, whether it be fornication or adultery. The Holy Spirit here warns not only believers in Corinth, but all believers, even unto this present hour and until we are caught up into paradise to be with Jesus. See, when an individual Christian commits fornication, he disgraces the whole body of Christ. You can't use the the lingo, well, it doesn't hurt anybody. (laughs) It does. It does. Because you're a member. If you're a member of Christ, you're a member of Christ's body. And you are therefore linking Christ to that immorality. Think of it this way. When a Christian commits fornication, he illegally takes what belongs to God and gives it to somebody else. When a Christian commits fornication, he illegally takes what belongs to God, his body, and gives it to someone else. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That speaks of that unity that we have in Christ. The believer is one spirit with Christ. He also talks about protection of the body in verse 18. He gives a command here. He says, flee, what? Sexual immorality. Any sexual practices that would be partaken of outside of the confines of marriage. Marriage being a man and a woman. That's how God defines marriage. He says every other person, or every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so he continues to press this point about illicit behavior because it was such a big deal in the Corinthian church. And he calls them out and says it's a sin against the Christian relationship because it takes that which belongs to Christ and gives it to somebody else. So he says flee. Therefore flee sexual immorality. Webster defines this meaning to run with rapid pace as from danger, to attempt escape to hasten from danger or expected evil, to avoid, to keep at a distance from. That's what it means to flee. I think many Christians today, especially Christian men, think just the opposite. They think somehow flee means, well, just go up and get, see how close you can get to the line of sinfulness. It's not like you're going to go sleep with the lady, but, you know, you can have some fun in your mind with her. And that's okay. And by the way, it's not just men. 
You know, studies today show that women are just as involved in pornography almost as men are. That's staggering to me, but that's true. And Paul says, flee from it. Flee from it. That's what he told Timothy. Young pastor, he said, flee also youthful lusts. But what, Timothy? Follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that the call of the Lord, with them live at the, that the call of the Lord out of a pure heart. Follow the call of the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee youthful lusts. Think of some examples we have in Scripture. Genesis chapter 39, Joseph's a good example to follow. What, what happened? When tempted, what did he do? He took off. He ran. However, in the example of David, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we, we don't see a good example. He failed to flee. So therefore, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, which ended up in murder. And he paid dearly for that. See, we must learn, dear Christian, to practice the discipline of putting on Christ and fleeing when it comes to temptation. Just run. One man asked me one time years ago, he said, yeah, I just can't, you know, that's this pornography thing and I just can't seem to deal with it. I said, well, I mean, do you have a computer in your house? Oh, yeah, you know. Get rid of it. What? (laughs) Get rid of it? I mean, you know, you need a computer. Well, how serious are you? I mean, remember what Jesus said? Your eye causes you to sin. What? Plug it out. Cut off your hand. Do whatever it takes. Because all that stuff's temporary anyway. I mean, that seems very radical. The digital age here in the Silicon Valley. You mean, you don't have a computer in your house? Or, Wow. <laughs> Romans 13, 14, Paul says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision. Make no opportunity for the flesh to gratify its desires. See, here is a problem that leads to failure. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. If we'd simply practice that one command, we would have it pretty easy. We would avoid a lot of heartache, a lot of sin, a lot of failure. But somehow we think that we can play footsie with sin. So he talks about also here the possession of the body. We'll close with this. He moves from the the negative to the positive. (laughs) So we'll end on a positive note here. He reinforces his teaching here. We went over this, the first message, about being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I just want to give you three reasons to stay pure sexually. First of all, the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says there in verse 19a, Or do you not know your temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, from whom you have from God? At the very moment of salvation, the believer's body becomes the dwelling place of God. Every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit literally dwells within us. In the first message, you can get that online, but the first message, we talked about the similarity between our body and the Old Testament temple. And we drew some similarities there. 
Secondly, the purchase of the Savior. He says in verse, the end of verse 19 there, you're not your own. You were what? You were bought with a price. <laughs> not only you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, but also you were purchased by God himself, by Christ. I mean, you hear a lot of people say today, well, it's my body and I can do whatever I want with it. This is a stupid statement if I've ever heard one, especially from the lips of a child of God. You know, the last time I checked, when you purchase something, what happens? It belongs to you, does it not? Jesus Christ purchased our salvation, the Bible says, and we belong not to ourselves, to him. That's why he says, you are not your own. In other words, it's an established fact. If you're in Christ, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And that price was tremendous, beloved. The price that Christ paid was tremendous, that we would be redeemed, that we would be purchased from the slave market of sin. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, we read this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, and those are pretty valuable things, but they're perishable. Verse 19, but with the precious, what? Blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, what Jesus Christ did for us in the shedding of his blood is for the most part, beyond anything we can ever even comprehend. We don't understand it. I mean, we can explain it theologically to some degree. We use terms like love and grace and mercy to explain it. But we fall massively short in our understanding of God's love. We know it's real because we experience it in our own lives. We know it works. We know what it's done for us. It's freed us from that burden of sin that we carried. But who can sufficiently put it in words? What a glorious and great God we have. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. See, when the day came for the sins of man to be paid, beloved, when the day came for those sins to be paid for, it was God who paid the redemptive price. And he paid it with the blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one sin has ever been forgiven apart from the blood of Christ. That's why Peter calls it, what, precious. He says, without a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. God's son, he lived a perfect life here on earth. He was the lamb without spot or blemish. He had no faults. He loved sinners and willingly went to the cross for you and for me to shed his blood to cover our sin that we could receive that glorious gift of salvation. So as Christians, please don't make the stupid statement that says, oh, I'm, I'm my own person. No, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. And then he, lastly here, he lists our priority. He says, so glorify God in your body, in verse 20. In other words, 
based on what I just told you, just go glorify God. Just do, do what God tells you to do. We don't want to be involved in things that bring reproach upon the name of God. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. It's a serious command. It's an authoritative command. One commentator says, you have been playing fast and loose with your body. You who have been letting the standard down and not caring. You who have allowed the spirit of the age to catch you. Remember, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, it follows that you are not your own. The greatest tyrant in life is self. The demand for freedom from restraint. A me-first attitude. Touchiness and loneliness. But the Bible says we are not our own And what a real comfort that is. You cannot have the grace of God, beloved, without the government of God. Real deliverance demands real holiness. The price of his precious blood demands a practical surrender of all your body. You can't have free salvation unless you accept it gladly from a risen Savior. And you acknowledge, I am no longer my own. I am bought with a price. If that's true, you have no right to injure God's property. If any man defiles the temple of God, him will God destroy. You have no right to drunkenness, immorality, or uncleanness. You have no right to indulgence or laziness. You have no right to self-control, lack of self-control in appetite or behavior. Furthermore, you have no right to Let yourself lie waste. If you belong to the Lord, then you should be going to work for Him each and every day. You have no right to any reservations, no right to self-government. When Satan comes with all his attacks, you must tell him, that you are not your own. Every power and faculty all the time is all together God's. From the day of salvation, the believer exists to bring glory to his name. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That word glorify comes from where we get the English word doxology, Doxology is a a word of praise and glory. It carries the idea about speaking good about somebody. What we do in our bodies does not praise and glorify God, then we need to repent. We need to turn back to Christ. We need to confess that. But our very lives ought to speak well of the one who bought us. I'm reminded of the song we'll close with. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only, all for thee. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.
Lord, we thank you that we are called to live each day. Not part of the day, not some of the day, all of the day for your glory. Now, I know we don't do that perfectly, but that should be our goal. That should be our desire. And Father, it's only by your power of your spirit, the power that works within us, in this temple that we call a body, that you can work through for your glory. Lord, I pray if there's any here today who is yet to cry out to you for forgiveness of their sin, maybe you're moving, you're working in someone's heart here this morning. They know that they're a sinner. They know that they've done things that are not right, even by the world's judgment, let alone God's. That's called sin. And one day, we're all going to be called to answer for our sin. And the last place you ever want to be is standing before a holy God trying to give an excuse for your sin. Because there'll be no excuse given. There'll be no excuse that will pass the standard. And that's why he sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that we can put our faith and trust in his sacrifice for us and that he can come into our lives through the power of his spirit and change us and mold us and make us and shape us into the person that he desires us to be. And for the first time, we can live lives that are free from sin. Not perfect lives, but free from the power of sin. One day we'll be free from the presence of sin in heaven. But until then, we still have to deal with sin on a daily basis. But Lord, you have given us victory over that. And so I pray this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they would even cry out in the the quietness of this moment, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Give me more information on this subject. I want to know more. If that's that's going on in your mind and your heart right now, I pray that you would talk to someone after the service about how you can come to Christ. And as Christians, as we leave this building, I pray as we go next door that you'd bless this food to our bodies, but also, Lord, that you'd bless our fellowship and even bless the remainder of the day as we leave here and go out into this sin-stained world. I pray that we'd be willing to take the message of hope and forgiveness in Christ to those who've yet to hear it. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.